0: EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a TAD Predictable hosted by Tadewa. Good boys and girls, two for the podcast. Today is Monday. It is the tenth of July. Hope you're all well. Hope you all had a nice weekend, and hope you're all like me dealing with miserable rain. Because if I'm having to deal with it, you should be as well. Uh, over the weekend, England defeated Spain to win the European Under 21 Championships. Curtis Jones credited with the only goal of the game was a Cole Parmer shot that hit Jones. As he tried to get out of the way, Cole Palmer free kick. In fact, Jones was trying to get out of the way. It hit him, deflected, beat the keeper, went in. Jones was credited with the goal, but he knew very little about it. However, he was also voted man of the match and was excellent throughout. England were good. I thought Spain played pretty well as well. I thought a draw probably would have been the fair result. And you know, we go to extra time. We go to penalties if need be. Spain missed that last-minute penalty. Uh, Great save by James Trafford. The follow-up save to the penalty save was actually even better because the penalty was quite poor. The follow-up save was excellent. Credit to Lee Carsley; He's done excellent work with this England squad. Credit to the goalkeeper and the defenders, especially Harwood Bellis and Colwell, who I thought were outstanding in the games I saw through the tournament. England didn't concede a single goal. Uh, Jones and Angel Gomes were very good in midfield. I thought Gibbs-White had an excellent tournament. Uh, I was a little bit surprised that Anthony Gordon was given player of the tournament because I don't think he was one of England's five best players in the tournament, but it is what it is. Um, Congrats to England. It's a big thing for this group of players. It's a moment they'll always remember. It's silverware for their country, which is important. It helps England continue to build on what's been done in the the age the, the lower age groups as well over the last four or five years. So all things considered, it's a very, very positive outcome and something that a lot of these players can use as a bit of a springboard, as a confidence booster going into next season. Uh, particularly the likes of Emile Smith-Rowe, who I thought had a good tournament, obviously coming off a very disappointing season with Arsenal, and I'll be interested to see how he does in the season coming up. Uh, Moving on, it is, of course, day five of our continued march down memory lane, and today we have the 96-97 Premier League season. So on Friday we did 95-96, and at the end of that season, Manchester City, Queen's Park Rangers and Bolton Wanderers were all relegated to the First Division, replacing them in the Premier League, Sunderland and Derby County. This was a return to top flight for both of them after five years in the lower leagues. And Leicester City, who had been up, gone down, and were now back up. So in terms of stadiums, Derby were still playing at the baseball ground back then. That stadium would last short while, and then they would replace it with Pride Park. Again, the baseball ground is just one of those historic old stadiums that saw the greatest Derby County teams in history under Brian Clough. It's a stadium that had that old school vibe to it. Now, again, like many other stadiums that were over 100 years old by the time they got demolished, they were crumbly, lacking amenities, not very comfortable, but there was a charm to them. And there was real history to them as well. And it's such a shame that we're losing so much of these stadiums even now. You know, there's there's very few proper old school stadiums left. And it's natural because, you know, you have to move on. You have to get more modern. The stadium has to be a money generator for the club's. Because it is an asset of the club. It's not just it's not just where you play, it's where you make money. Derby would continue to use the stadium until the end of this season. And then it would be replaced by Pride Park. The stadium itself continued in use for the reserve team and the youth sides up until two thousand and three and was then demolished in 2004. Uh, Called the baseball ground because it had initially been used for baseball. Uh, Derby Baseball Club played there from 1890 until 1918. Like I said, it saw some great moments for Derby County. It saw both of their league titles, the title in 71-72 and the second one in 74-75. It saw four different, what we call now the championship uh, winning seasons, 1911, 12, 1914, 15, 1968, 69, and 1987, 88. And they also won the third division while playing there in 1957. Moving on, we also had, like I said, Sunderland come up. They were still playing at Roker Park. Again, another one of these old school stadiums. It was Sunderland's home from 1898 up until this season. This was their last season there. And then they would move into the Stadium of Light. Again, a proper old school stadium. They had a massive, one end of the stadium was this massive bank, uncovered for years and years. And it really did have an incredible atmosphere. Roker Park, the Roker Roar, was known for its atmosphere. It was known as a place that when Sunderland were good, it was an intimidating place to go because the fans would really be up for games. And of course, long forgotten, but Sunderland have won six top division titles in their history. 1891-92, 1892-93, 1894-95, 1901-02, 1912-13, and 1935-36, all of which took place at Roker Park. They also won the championship twice, 75-76 and 95-96, which is what leads them into the Premier League in the 96-97 season. They were also um, what we now call League One champions in 1987-88. So Roker Park saw a lot of success for that club. It saw the greatest times of Sunderland Football Club. And Leicester City, still playing at Filbert Street, which we've discussed in the past. Obviously, their greatest moment came playing at the King Power when they won the Premier League title. But they did have plenty of great moments at Filbert Street as well. And these were just, these were older stadiums that were in part because of the post-Hillsborough push to modernise stadiums, make them all seater, and in part because of the Premier League's demands for these, these bigger capacities and these amenity-driven stadiums to be more like the American stadiums of the time, which you know were basically like going to a theme park. You had everything you could do there. You could spend a day inside some of the big American stadiums and the Premier League had seen that and we're looking to make everything more commercial, not just stadiums, but stadiums certainly fell under, under that umbrella of, we need the stadiums to get bigger. We need them to get fancier. We need them to be better for TV. We need to be able to have more camera angles. And unfortunately, these older stadiums just, you know, they had to be replaced and it's a shame. It's a shame that we lose this history and, Yes, I am full-blown nostalgia merchant here, but, you know, Roker Park, the baseball ground in Filbert Street, as a kid, you'd hear of these stadiums, you'd see these things, you could be lucky enough to get to go to some of these stadiums as I was, and you got a real sense of proper, working-class football. You know, you go to some of these more modern stadiums now, and they're incredible, like Don't get me wrong. The the experience on the whole is vastly superior at these new stadiums, but at the same time, the atmosphere is nowhere near what it was back in these days. And the match-going fan isn't the same as it was back in the 80s and the 90s, and obviously before that, but it's before my time, a lot of working class people have been priced out of football, especially at the Premier League level, where ticket prices are quite simply obnoxious. You know, why is it that ticket prices in England are so expensive now when in Germany, for example, they're so much more affordable? I I, I don't understand why that is. I don't understand why people are putting themselves in... Sorry, not not they're making the decision to, but why are they having to put themselves in such financial difficulty just to support their team? For example, the cheapest season ticket at Bayern Munich, one of the biggest clubs in the world, is €150 a year. The cheapest at Borussia Dortmund is 240 a year. That is outrageous in comparison to what the Premier League clubs are charging. There just seems to be far more emphasis on the fans with the German clubs than there is With the English clubs. Like even for example. Just to go to a one off game. To see Bayern Munich play. The cheapest ticket. Is 15 quid. And they're not bad tickets at all. They're in the corners. And they're behind the goals. They're where they want. The hardcore. Passionate fans. Who are going to make the most noise. Now look. The tickets do obviously go up as well. There's there's 80 quid tickets for Bayern in the, the premium seats. But at the same time, if you're a football fan, the Bundesliga clubs are doing far more to help you and enable you to get to go to watch your team play week on week than any of the English clubs. And I know I've gone completely off target here, but... This is something that's been bothering me for a long, long time. Anyway, back to what we're talking about, which is the 96-97 Premier League season. So, Derby County, they come up. Jim Smith is their manager. Sunderland have Peter Reid, legendary midfielder, would go on to be a pundit. Very well known in the game and did incredible work during his time at Sunderland. And Leicester City are managed by Martin O'Neill. Now, we begin the season with a foreign manager. Ruud Hullis is the new player manager of Chelsea Football Club. So he's only the second manager that we've had. We're now in season five that we've gone through and he's the second foreign manager that we've had, not counting Joe Kinnear, the Irishman. In this season, we also get the introduction of the first great foreign manager in the Premier League, and we'll come to that. Going into the season, though, having largely been English, Irish, Scottish, and Welsh captains, we have some foreign captains as well, So you've still got Tony Adams, Andy Townsend, Tim Sherwood, Dennis Wise, Gary McAllister. Igor Stimak is the captain of Derby, legendary Croatian defender, who joined the club in the lower league and was a vital part in helping them get up, was a vital part in their stay in the Premier League, would go on to West Ham, had split, and is now a manager with varying degrees of success. He's most recently been the manager of the Indian under-23 team. And I think he might still be in charge of the Indian senior team. I could be completely... Let me check. Let me check. He is. He is the manager of India's national football team. Um, Dave Watson is at Everton. Lucas Radaby is the captain of Leeds. Steve Walsh at Leicester. John Barnes at Liverpool. Eric Cantona is the new Manchester United captain after the departure of Steve Bruce. Nigel Pearson, Peter Beardsley, Stuart Pierce, Peter Atherton, Matt Letizia, Kevin Ball, Captain of Sunderland, Gary Mavitt, Julian Dix and Vinnie Jones. So kit manufacturers, we've got some new ones entering the fray. So again, Nike, not overly represented. It's just Arsenal in this season. Uh, Reebok, they have Aston Villa and they have Liverpool. Big, big get for them at the time. And they made some decent kits, it must be said. Um, ASICS, they had Blackburn Rovers, and that was it. And they were starting to really drift out at this point. Umbro, still going strong. Chelsea, Everton, Manchester United, and Nottingham Forest. Lecoq Sportif, making the Coventry City jerseys. Puma had Derby, they had Leeds, they had Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, Leicester still being made by Fox Leisure. Middlesbrough still being made by Iria. Adidas's only team that year was Newcastle. Uh, Pony had Southampton, Spurs, and West Ham. And Avec, who I don't remember had Sunderland. Um, shirt sponsor-wise, Villa have ACT Research. I think they had them last season as well. Uh, Arsenal has still had JVC. CIS with Derby. Coors with Chelsea. Peugeot with um, Coventry. Puma were also sponsoring Derby's front of shirt. Danka were sponsoring Everton. Leeds went to Packard Bell that year. Leicester went to Walkers, or I think it was the year before they went to Walkers, but this was what prompted then when they moved into their new stadium some years later that it was the Walkers Stadium. Uh, Liverpool had Carlsberg, United still had Sharp, Borough had Salnet, Newcastle had Newcastle Brown Ale, Forest had Labatts, Sheffield Wednesday and Southampton still had Sanderson, Vaux Breweries, a major brewer and hotel owner based in Sunderland, we're, we're sponsoring Sunderland. Uh, Hewlett-Packard with Tottenham. Dagenham Motors with West Ham. And Elon with Wimbledon. So, during the season... Now, we've had a couple of seasons to this point where there's been no managerial changes. In the summer of this year, we had two. One was Glenn Hoddle, took the England job, and Rude Hull replaced him as Chelsea manager. The other was Dave Merrington, who'd won manager of the month, I think, in the last month of the previous season. He was sacked and replaced by Graham Souness. Now, Souness had obviously been Liverpool manager when the Premier League kicked off. It had been a pretty big disaster. He'd gone to Galatasaray and sort of rebuilt his managerial career, largely by sticking a Galatasaray flag in the centre circle at Fenerbahce and causing a near-riot. But soonest was back. Um, very early in the season, Arsenal made the decision to sack Bruce Rioch. Stuart Houston was appointed as caretaker. At, a little while later, Leeds sacked Howard Wilkinson and brought in George Graham, who we've talked about before, had been incredible at Arsenal, and had had to leave because of the the bung scandal. Um, Stuart Houston, who was the caretaker manager at Arsenal, decided to take the QPR job in the Championship after they decided to change managers. He was replaced briefly by Pat Rice, and then eventually by the first great foreign manager to come into the Premier League, Arsene Wenger. There is absolutely no Premier League Mount Rushmore of managers that is legitimate Without this man, it goes Ferguson, him, Mourinho, Pep. And unfortunately, Klopp is the one to miss out. For Premier League, for Premier League, unfortunately, Klopp misses out. Now, if he wins another one, then you would have to start having some conversations, though Mourinho would still have three. Wenger would still have three. Obviously, Pep has five. Ferguson has 13. But Klopp would be starting to get into the conversation a bit more if he wins one more. And if he wins two more, I think he's absolutely in. And I think it is Mourinho who drops out. As great a manager as Jose is, I think for a Premier League legacy, Klopp will leave a stronger legacy if he wins three. Because he will have even if he wins two, there's a good argument. Because, and I love Mourinho. I'm far higher on Mourinho than most, but Klopp will have done it against the odds going against the behemoth. Mourinho's team was the behemoth. They had all the money to spend. So I do think Klopp, one more we'll have the conversation. Right, just full transparency there. Had to pause the recording because there was cracks of thunder. Uh, Molly does not like Tundra, so I've had to bring her into the office with me. So we may get interrupted if she decides to start having a shout at anything she might disagree with or tell the thunder to go away, but just to keep everybody aware of what's going on. Um, I was talking about Wenger, Mount Rushmore. So like I said, Ferguson and Wenger, to me, will never be moved off that list. Ferguson, for the success that he had, Wenger had great success as well, but the changes that he made to English football are bigger and more impactful than anyone else who's ever come through the league, including Guardiola. What he did in terms of training methods, nutrition, scouting and recruitment, just on a completely different level to anything that had been seen in England before. Arsene Wenger is responsible for the modernisation of English football. Solely responsible for it, because what he did gave Arsenal such an edge in the early years that pretty soon everyone was copying. People were hiring people, clubs were hiring people from Arsenal just in the hope that they could give insight into what it was that Arsenal were doing, how it was they went about the recruitment, what type of nutrition were they providing for the players, what were the plans they were putting on the players, how were they training What were they doing in training? Arsene Wenger took English football forward an incredible amount, and his value to the league is far greater than anything on pitch can be measured. So, like I say, it's him, it's Ferguson, it's Mourinho, it's Pep. If Klopp wins another one, then Klopp versus Jose becomes a real conversation to have. Anyway, back to managers. Uh, Ray Harford resigned as Blackburn manager in October and was replaced by Tony Parks. Ron Atkinson was promoted to director of football at Coventry in November and Gordon Strachan became player manager. Frank Clark resigned as manager of Nottingham Forest, was replaced by Stuart Pearce. Kevin Keegan, in one of the more shocking resignations that we'd seen in the Premier League era, resigned as manager of Newcastle. Terry McDermott took over for a week as caretaker. And Kenny Dogleash re-emerged on the scene a few years after his retirement from Blackburn and took over from the man he took over from at Liverpool in terms of playing, because Liverpool sold Keegan and bought Kenny to replace him. And then in March, the last change of the year, Joe Royal resigned as Everton manager and was replaced as by Dave Watson, who became player caretaker manager. Now, in terms of transfers this season, we obviously saw in the last season, we saw more of a surge towards foreign players. We saw the. Transfer fees start to creep up and up. So again, we're just going to go with the way it's listed here, which is not alphabetical, which, believe me, drives me absolutely nuts. But this is the way it is. So first up, we have Aston Villa. Sasa Churchich signed from Bolton. He had a great time at Bolton. Went to Villa, got a big contract, and never quite performed at the level that was expected of him. Uh, Julian Joachim also arrived that season from Leicester City. He was really highly regarded as a young player. When he was like under 18s playing for England with Robbie Fowler, the two of them were viewed kind of on the same level, which was a bit ridiculous at the time. But Joachim's incredible pace, he was small, but he was really powerfully built. I'm trying to think. Just He was like a, a smaller version of Adama Traore, but he was a good finisher. Um, never quite became the player he was expected to be uh Sheffield Wednesday signed Andy Booth from Huddersfield. He was one that had been banging in goals in the lower league was seen as like the best striker outside the Premier League and then got his move to uh Sheffield Wednesday to replace David Hurst. Patrick Blondo, young well not young French right right back arrived from Monaco. Wayne Collins came from Crew Alexandra. Scott Oaks came from Luton. Dave Billington came in from Peterborough, a very young goalkeeper, only 17. Oh, sorry, young defender. And Matt Clark arrived from Rotherham. They also signed Benito Carboni, who to this day remains one of my favourite Premier League players. He wasn't great, he was a little bit psychotic, but there was just moments of absolute magic that he could produce. Uh, so I've always been a fan. Uh, Orlando Trustful, I don't remember, I must say. Um, Leicester City, they signed Matt Elliott, big commanding centre-back from Oxford. They signed Casey Kelleher, US goalkeeper who'd been at Millwall. Muzzy Izzet, joined from Chelsea. Ian Marshall came in from Ipswich. Steve Guppy, who would be a key part of their team for a number of years, arrived from Port Vale. Rob Ullathorn came in from Osasuna. And Spencer Pryor arrived from Norwich. Wimbledon signed Ben Thatcher from Millwall. And Duncan Jupp from Fulham. I thought they had boxed off their fullback spots for the long term. Now Ben Thatcher is one of the more one of the more disappointing young players in my time watching the game. Because when he was at Millwall, they had a left side of him and Mark Kennedy. And Kennedy got his move earlier and went to Liverpool. Now, he didn't amount to what was expected of him either. But Ben Thatcher was like, he was really, really highly regarded. And at a time when Gary Neville and Rob Jones were, and Warren Barton were competing for the right-back spot for England, at left-back, Graham Lesseau hadn't had a huge amount of competition at this point. And Ben Thatcher was seen as like this guy's the next Stuart Pearce. He's going to be he's going to be an England starter for a decade, and he became a decent player, but he also became a thug. And he's probably most remembered for a horrendous elbow that he threw into. I want to say it was Pedro Mendes, but I could be wrong. Just YouTube Ben Thatcher elbow. It is one of the most horrendous actions you'll see on a Premier League football field ever. And it's a shame that that's what he's mostly remembered for because he could have been such a good player. Coventry City signed Gary Breen from Birmingham. Uh, Alexander Yutashok, Yevtoshok, I don't remember him, arrived from Dnipro. Reggie Gunnoe arrived from Standard Liège. Darren Huckerby came in from Newcastle. Michael O'Neill, who would obviously is now the Northern Ireland manager again, he came in from uh, Hibs. Gary McAllister arrived from Leeds on the cheap, and Owen Jess, who had been at Aberdeen, was really highly regarded in Scottish football. And Scottish football at this point was actually very competitive. There's a lot of money. Rangers had spent a fortune. Celtic were spending big, big money. Those star names had been flooding through Scotland in the 90s. And Owen Jess was a really highly thought of player, but he came south of the border and it just never really worked out. Most of these signings, it must be said, never worked out. This is Ron Atkinson uh, in full Wheeler Dealer mode. Manchester United signed Carol Paborsky. Of course, we've come off the back of Euro 96. And at Euro 96, the Czechs and the Croats have really announced themselves Onto the big stage after the breakup of Yugoslavia, the breakup of Czechoslovakia, there was these uh, new teams emerging: the Czech Republic and Slovakia, obviously. But you had Croatia, you had Serbia, you had um, well, it was actually Serbia and Montenegro at the time. You had Bosnia and Herzegovina, and there was a lot of a lot more movement of players from within those countries. Beyond the borders. And Karol Pavorski had made a name for himself at the Euros as part of that Czech team that got to the final and lost to Germany. Scored one of the more outrageous goals you'll ever see. It's been described as a chip, but it's not really a chip. It's like a loft from the edge of the box where he just sort of scoops it, doesn't chip it. He gets his foot under and he lifts it. And it, it is genuinely outrageous. Um wasn't the goal of the tournament though. It was voted goal of the tournament, but it shouldn't have been. Davor Suker for Croatia against Denmark. The the actual chip over Peter Schmeichel is to this day one of the most glorious goals I've ever seen. It's a long ball played to him. He's he's wide left on the on the halfway line. Ball is played from the right. He takes it in stride. Runs into space. The, the Danes had pushed forward and were chasing a goal. And he's 1v1 with Schmeichel. He's on an angle on the left side of the box as a left footer. And you're wondering where the finish is. Because Schmeichel comes out, and as Schmeichel always did, covered the angles really well. And Suker just in the most arrogant way possible, just chipped it over him. Uh, it's It's to this day one of my favourite ever goals. United also signed um, Jordy Cruyff, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Ronnie Johnson. Now, two of them were good for United, and one wasn't. Uh, Raymond van der Haar arrived. Wes Brown was promoted into the first team, and Wes Brown, Wes Brown should have been a much better player than he was. He was 16 when he got promoted to the first team squad. Like that's how that's how promising he was. Gary Neville should have had a very short United career because this guy should have been slotted in at right back for a decade and then moved into center back in like his late 20s but he got moved around he had some injuries and it just never really developed the way we the way people hoped at the time uh Newcastle broke the world record transfer fee to bring in Alan Shearer from Blackburn so Shearer had won a title with Blackburn Newcastle the season prior to this had bottled the title and Keegan having just spent a fair bit of money in his time there decided to go all in and brought in Alan Shearer. Nottingham Forest signed Pierre van Um, he'd been great for Celtic scored goals for fun the most memorable thing he did at Nottingham Forest was go on strike. That's genuinely the most memorable thing he did. They also signed an experienced Dean Saunders from Galatasaray. There's a brilliant Dean Saunders story that he tells about how he came close to signing for Forest years before and a lot of clubs were in for him because he'd been banging in goals for Derby. And it had kind of come down to Everton or or Forest. I'll let you go and listen to the story for yourself. Just throw it into YouTube, Dean Saunders, Brian Clough story. If If it doesn't make you just smile and laugh and think that maybe football was significantly better because of the characters that there was around back then. Um I don't know how to tell you, but yeah, it's manic. And he eventually obviously ends up at Forest. Clough is long gone by this point, but yeah, it just kind of brought things around for him. Uh, Ian Thomas Moore arrived. Chris Allen arrived from Oxford. Nigel Clough arrived back at the club. From Manchester City on loan, he obviously had left the club to join Liverpool, left Liverpool to join City and now with City relegated, he wanted to stay playing in the top flight. So back to Forest it was. Um, Middlesbrough, they decided after the success of Janino and Nick Barnby, they decided to go absolutely buck wild here. They bring in Mikel Beck from Fortuna Cologne. It turned out to be a pretty decent striker. Vladimir Kinder was a solid enough defender. Came in from Slovan Bratislava, Slovakian international. Mark Schwarzer was probably the best goalkeeper outside of the top flight. The year before this, they signed him from Bradford. Emerson was an outrageously talented midfielder from Porto, who didn't seem to know who he was signed signing for. And I can only imagine his agent was the driving force behind this deal because he looked completely bamboozled by the fact that when he arrived in August, it was still, you know, pretty cold because it was Middlesbrough and he was used to playing in Brazil and Portugal. He had some incredible moments for for Burra. Moments where he looked like he could be the best midfielder in the league. And then he had moments like he just wanted to be anywhere else. And his time there was, I think, one season. Then he went out on loan. I think then they sold him permanently. You'd have to look it up. But, yeah, it was it was eventful. There's a great book uh, called You're Joking, Aren't You?, that I've had Tom Flight, the author of, on this pod before. And it chronicles this season for burla because this is a historic season for burla And a bizarre season, as we'll get into. But uh, Emerson features in that book. It's well worth a read. And they signed Fabrizio Ravinelli. Now, Ravinelli, at this point, 27 in his prime, one of the most feared goal scorers in Europe, had just scored in a European Cup final to win a European Cup for Juventus. And a decision was made by Juventus that they were going to to sell him. Now, they were also losing Vialli that summer. He, He was out of contract. But, and I suppose that, in a way, that did make it even stranger. Um, But they wanted to rebuild their front line around Del Piero and around a younger generation. I'm almost certain that if I look Juventus up, they signed Christian Vieri and Nicolo Amoruso to replace Viali and... Yes, Christian Vieri and Nicolo Amoruso to replace Viali and Ravinelli. They also signed Alan Boxic who was a bit more of a ready-made option, although it didn't work out very well from at Juve. Uh, they also signed Zinedine Zidane that summer, and Paulo Montero, who was a great defender, but had great trouble not getting himself sent off. Um, but we're not here to talk about Juventus, so let's go back to what we were on, which is the Premier League. Uh, so that was and uh, Nick Barnby left that summer. Deciding to move to Everton. I don't think he enjoyed playing with Janinho. And there was a guy there called Craig Hignett. And even though it was clear Janinho and Barnaby were the better two. Hignett and either of them tended to be a bit more effective. Because Hignett could play more off the ball. And he he wasn't a star. So he didn't care. He just wanted to help the team. So he would do a lot of the off-ball running, getting themselves in the box, taking up clever spots and allow whoever the other was to do more on the ball. And Janinho was a better player than Nick Barnby, so Barnby out and um, so be it. Chelsea signed Gianfranco Zola, who for me is arguably still the greatest player that club has had. They signed Roberto Di Matteo, Frank Leboeuf, who was outstanding for Chelsea. Absolutely outstanding for Chelsea. Uh, they signed Gianluca Vialli as well. Arsenal signed Patrick Vieira. And a little bit later in the year, they signed a fella called Nicolas Anelka. These were players that the Premier League didn't know about. <laughs> they knew about them all too quickly once they got there. John Lukic came back from Leeds in a free. He'd been at Arsenal. he won league titles. He came back as a backup to Seaman. Remy Gard arrived from Strasbourg and moving on then Leeds signed Lee Sharp from Manchester United Lee Bowyer from Charlton Nigel Martin who was the was was English football's uh, maybe world football's first million pound goalkeeper uh when he moved i think to Crystal Palace Nigel Martin Nigel Martin is the most underrated goalkeeper of his generation yeah he moved from um from Bristol Rovers to Crystal Palace in 1989 for a million quid. And it was the first million pound transfer for a goalkeeper in English football. So it had happened elsewhere, but he was really, really good. Now, unfortunately for him, he'd stayed at Palace a little bit too long. He only ended up with 23 England caps, but he played an era with Seaman and with Tim Flowers. I would have put him neck and neck with Tim Flowers in terms of ability and performance. But Tim Flowers was winning tit- was winning a title and playing at a top level with Blackburn. David Seaman was at Arsenal. He was at Crystal Palace. Now when he went to Leeds, they took off and became more of a force. And obviously, finished out at Everton and was good for the for the Blues as well. Uh, they signed Robert Molinar, who I don't remember. Derek Lilly, who I don't remember, and Gunnar Halle. Derek Lilly for- from Morton. Let me. See. I don't remember this guy, Derek. Really. Uh. Okay. Was at Leeds, ninety-seven to ninety-nine, but spent the ninety-eight, ninety-nine season on a couple of loans. Scored one goal in twenty-five appearances. I don't remember. Don't remember him at all, to be honest. Um, Gunnar Holla arrived from Oldham. He'd been a pretty serviceable fullback for Oldham for a while and got his move to a a bigger club. Uh, West Ham signed John Hartson and Paul Kitson to be their new front pair. Two very talented players. They actually were really good together as well uh, in the short time that they were there together. Steve Lomas arrived at West Ham from Man City. Richard Hall came in from Southampton. Florin Raduchoiu arrived from Espanol in what was quite an exciting transfer at the time because he was a big name. He was well known. He was Hadji's executioner. Didn't quite work out in the Premier League. Uh, Stan Lazarides arrived, an Australian, which was you know very exotic altogether. Scott Mean arrived in from Bournemouth. Mark Bowen arrived from Norwich. He'd been around. And Paulo Futre arrived from AC Milan. Now Paulo Futre was one of those outrageously talented players that flattered to deceive pretty much most of his career. Like he had some very good moments, but all things considered, his ego really did get the better of him. Now he was good he was pretty good for Atletico Madrid for a while, but they soon tired of him booting him out. He'd come through at sporting, he'd moved to Porto. Moved on to Real, to Atletico when they decided they'd had enough of him. Um, I think he had a couple of knee injuries as well, but they sent him to Benfica. He'd been at Marseille, he'd been at Reggiana. He'd gone to Milan. He couldn't make any impact there. He joins West Ham, and Harry Redknapp tells a great story about first game of the season that he's due to play. I think he think he arrived in. Remember, there was no transfer window at this point, so I think he arrived. Like a few weeks into the season, they were due to play. Red claims they were due to play Arsenal. So, this is what I'm going on. This is to be his first game. Wenger had arrived in mid September. So, this has to be after that. He's in the team. He gets to the stadium, walks into the dressing room, sees his jersey, Futre. I think it's number 18, and says, no, foot rate number 10, and starts listing off the great number 10s of the game, like Maradona, and then putting himself in that conversation. At this point in his career, he's only 30. He's not an elf but he hasn't really done much of anything in three years, which is why he's at West Ham at this point. He's adamant he has to wear number ten. Harry says to him, "You can't wear number ten. We've got squad numbers." So he upsticks and heads off home, and um, Redknapp then has to go crying to, to, to the referee and to Wenger and basically beg him to be allowed to change the team that late. Otherwise, they would have had to start with ten men and then make a substitution just after the game started, and bring on a sub for Paolo Futre, who wouldn't have even been on the pitch because he was left the stadium. Madness. Absolute madness. Anyway, uh, moving on again, where have we got? We have Sunderland. They signed Lee Clark, good young midfielder from Newcastle. Alex Ray from Millwall. Niall Quinn, who would, is probably best known for his time at Sunderland, certainly best known for his time as chairman of Sunderland. Uh, Tony Cotton, experienced keeper from United. Uh, Jan Eriksson, don't remember him. Lionel Perez, don't remember him. Chris Waddle, now 36, but uh, a legendary English player. Um, Southampton signed Egil Ostenstad. Southampton signed some really good players that no one had ever, well, obviously some people had ever heard of them, but pre internet, pre Twitter, pre YouTube, pre Y Scout, pre Infostat pre-FB ref, pre-all of the good stuff that we use now. You hadn't heard of these guys. Egil Olstenstad Osten, arrived from Viking. Klaus Lundigvam arrived from Bran. They signed Graham Potter as a young left-back from, from Stoke. Gary Monk, who'd obviously gone to have quite a good career, joined from Torquay. Eil Berkovich who's probably most famous for getting kicked in the face by John Hartson, but was a very talented player. Um, Robbie Slater, still knocking around. He arrives. Ali Dia, who this is a story that I have to tell. Most people will know this story. Some people might not. Ali Dia was brought on in a game as a sub and was so awful, so awful, that he got subbed back off and was never seen from again. But he'd been allegedly playing for Blythe Spartans, who are a non-league, like Sunday league team, basically. And some guy purporting to be his agent called Graham Sunes and said, I've got George Weah's cousin here. Do you want to sign him? And Sunes went, yeah, all right. <laughs> and he signs this fellow. Now, based on stories told by people who were at Southampton who trained with him, the fellow was awful in training, but Soon as was convinced he'd discovered something here, stuck him into a Premier League game, and he's just that bad he had to haul him off again. And we never seen him again. Yeah. Uh Chris Woods landed back in England as well. He'd been at Colorado, having been at Rangers, and Sheffield Wednesday in a bunch of different places, so he was back to and Ulrich Van Gobel, who I've never heard of, he came in from Galatasaray, another one of Suness's discoveries, I'm guessing. Um, Blackburn side, Georgius Donis, Greek winger from Panikinithos, um, who did an interview with. I want to say the Daily Mirror. I want to say it was the Mirror but basically made it very clear that the reason he was signing for Blackburn was because of the very generous financial package that was on offer. And that's exactly what he said. The guy was like, the interviewer was like, so, you know, what brought you to Blackburn? And he said, well, obviously, there's the very generous financial package that I was offered. And then the challenge of playing in the Premier League. Yeah, his... uh, his the way he put it made it clear which the priority was. Tottenham signed Stefan Everson, really good young forward from Rosenberg, just had so many injuries. They signed John Scales from Liverpool. Alan Nielsen from Bromby was a decent player. Ramon Vega came in from Cagliari. He was all right. Espen Bardson, I don't remember. Liverpool signed Patrick Berger from Borussia Dortmund and he scored an absolute belter against Leicester in one of his first games. Maybe his first actual game. Bjorn torr of may arrive from Rosenberg. He looked great to begin with and then he just turned out to not be very good at all. Uh, Everton signed Nicky Barnby. They signed Paul Gerrard. They signed Klaus Thompson. They signed Terry Phelan. They sold Kanchelskis who they got the previous summer. He went to Fiorentina. Uh, Derby signed Chris Powell. Paolo Wanchop, legend, absolute legend. Mark Poom, I can only think of two Estonian players to play in the Premier League. Mark Poom and Ragnar Klavan. Mark Poom, though, massive, blonde, almost translucent. He was that pale. Um, Paul Trollope, what a name. Paul McGrath. Still had a bit left in him, you know. And Christian Daly, who was actually pretty good, centre-back holding midfielder, arrived down from Dundee. Uh, they also signed Aljosa Asanovic, who'd been brilliant in that Croatian team. Christoph Remy, I don't remember. I, I don't think I remember him at all. Uh, and that's it. There are transfers. So, league table. Manchester United win the title again, 75 points, seven clear of Newcastle. Arsenal finished third, Liverpool finished fourth. Newcastle, Arsenal and Liverpool all had the same points, 68. Newcastle had the best goal difference, despite having the worst defence. Um, Liverpool had the best of neither, Arsenal the better defence. Uh, Villa finished fifth, 61 points. Chelsea seventh. On 59. Sorry, Chelsea 6 on 59. Sheffield Wednesday 7th. Wimbledon 8th. Leicester 9th. Tottenham 10th. Leeds 11th. Derby 12th. Tottenham, Leeds and Derby all at the same points. West Ham. Blackburn and Everton all at the same points. And this is where it gets really interesting. So, Southampton 71. Coventry, sorry, Southampton 41, Coventry 41. They survive. Sunderland 40 relegated after one season. Middlesbrough 39 and Nottingham Forest 34. So Forest get relegated and Sunderland get relegated, which uh, people had predicted both of those things. But Borough getting relegated was a huge surprise. And the thing is, the reason they were relegated, despite the fact that they were a much better team than most of those down the bottom is that they were docked three points because just before Christmas they were due to travel to Blackburn and they didn't turn up because they claimed they didn't have enough fit players because there'd been some sort of sickness outbreak. If they had just sent down a bunch of kids and got hammered like, they could have lost 15-0. They would have stayed up. But instead, they got... Because they would have taken no points that day. But instead, they were docked three points. Blackburn were given a 3-0 walkover. So, they didn't have to replay the game or anything. And Burrow went down. If they just played the game, even if... They lost heavily. At worst, they finish sixteenth. At worst, talk about masters of your own demise. Alan Shearer was top scorer with twenty five. Ian Wright got twenty three. Fowler got eighteen. Oleganor Solcher got eighteen, mostly coming off the bench, which was a hell of an effort. Dwight York got seventeen. Les Ferdinand and Fabrizio Ravinelli got 16. Dion Dublin and Matt Letizia, 13. Dennis Burkham, Steve Claridge, Stan Collymore and Janino all got 12. But that doesn't really tell the story of the season that Ravanelli had. Because Ravinelli scored 31 goals in all competitions. 60 in the league, 6 in the FA Cup and 9 in the League Cup. We had... Top of Sisters this season. Eric Cantona had 12. Neil Ardley of Wimbledon had 11. Burkamp, Hinchcliffe, McAllister and Zola all had 9. Barnby, Beckham, Bjornaby and Ferdinand all had 8. Hatricks. Opening day of the season. Kevin Campbell. Hattrick for Nottingham Forest against Coventry. Fabrizio Ravinelli. Opening day of the season. Hattrick Announcing himself into the league with a hat-trick against Liverpool. Ian Wright. Dwight York, Gary Speed, Robbie Fowler, who got four in a 5-1 walloping of Middlesbrough in the return game. That was the week before they didn't go and play Blackburn. Uh, Alan Shearer, Ian Marshall, Stefan Everson, another from Ravinelli, Kevin Gallagher, and Paul Watson all with hat-tricks. Only Dwight York ended up on the losing side with a hat-trick that year. Villa lost 4-3 to Newcastle. Your monthly awards: You had David Pleat, manager of the month in August. Then Joe Caner, September. Graham Sunes, October. Jim Smith in November. Gordon Strachan in December. Stuart Pearce in January. Alex Ferguson in February. Brian Robson in March, and Graham Sunes in April. So Graham Sunes wins it twice, but your manager of the year is Alex Ferguson. Player of the month: Patrick. I'm oh, sorry, uh, David Beckham in August. That was the year he scored from the halfway line. Beckham scored from the halfway line against Wimbledon that year. Uh, Patrick Berger won it, in, and I think that's why he won that award as well. Patrick Berger for Liverpool in September. Matt Letizia in op- October. Ian Wright in November. Gianfranco Zola December. Tim Flowers, unusual for a goalkeeper to win it. In January, Robbie Earl in February, Janino in March, and Mickey Evans in April. Janinho was the Premier League Player of the Season and newly create- created award. Alan Shearer won PFA Player of the Year. David Beckham was Young Player of the Year. And Gianfranco Zola won Football Writers Player of the Year. Your team of the season, David Seaman and Goal, Gary Neville, Tony Adams, Mark Wright, and Stig Inge Bjornaby. Two Liverpool defenders. And Liverpool weren't a great defensive team under Roy Evans. Beckham, Keane, Batty, and McManaman in midfield. And Shearer and Ian Wright as the two forwards. So both the football writers, footballer of the year, and the Premier League player of the year, were not included in the PFA team of the season. Um, so I mentioned the Ravinelli hat-trick on the opening day. You mentioned the Beckham goal. The most memorable game from this season is Manchester United. It was the opening day of the season Beckham scored from the halfway line in the 87th minute. The most memorable, well, actually, the most memorable two games of the season came in October. Both of them involved Manchester United. Both of them were away. October 20th, United go north to play Newcastle at St. James's Park. On Sky. Super Sunday. And they get absolutely trucked and beaten 5-0. 5-0. Newcastle were sensational in that game. And Philippe Albert scored another one of my all-time favourite goals. Again, chipping the same goalkeeper that Davor Sucre had done, Peter Schmeichel, from the edge of the box. Just outrageous. An absolutely outrageous goal. That was the icing on the cake goal. Peacock had put them one up on 12. Ginola scored on 30. Ferdinand on 63. Shearer on 75, and then Albert wrapped it up on 83. And Newcastle, at this point, looked like they were a good bet to win the league. Unfortunately, they then fell apart. Keegan resigned, and the season just wasn't the same. One of the reasons, though, that they looked like a good bet to win the league is that the following week, Manchester United travelled south and took on Southampton at the Dell. And in this game, they got trucked 6-3. And what was incredible about this game was that United changed kits at halftime. Berkovich scored two, Letizia scored, Austin Stead scored two. One of them, I think probably Letizia, uh chipped Schmeichel again, and Phil Neville scored a known goal. United had taken the field in a gray kit and were getting absolutely walloped at half time i think I think it was either three nil or four one or something like that, but regardless, they came back out for the second half wearing a black kit if memory serves. I think yeah, I think it was 4 1 at half time. Beckham scored just before half time. I think it was 4 1 at half time. Um people can check that, but yeah, the excuse then was the players couldn't see them see each other. They thought they were passing to people in the stands. The most ridiculous line that Alex Ferguson ever uttered. United lost their next game as well to Chelsea. And there was a big assumption because United had dropped into sixth that maybe United were done, that they maybe they weren't going to win the league this year. Uh, they lost two games the rest of the way and ran out comfortable Premier League winners. So there was no, no real concerns to be had or found there. Um, in the FA Cup that year, Chelsea would win the final, beating Middlesbrough. Roberto Di Matteo scored an absolute worldie after about 14 seconds, something like that. I think it was the fastest ever goal in an FA Cup final at the time. And the second goal was scored by Eddie Newton in the 83rd minute. Chelsea's team, Frode Grodas in goal, Dan Petrescu right back, Scott Minto left back, Dan Clark, Dan Clark, Steve Clark, and Frank Sinclair, either side of Frank Leboeuf. Dennis Wise, Matteo, and Eddie Newton in midfield, and Mark Hughes and Gianfranco Zola up front, with Kevin Hitchcock, Andy Myers, and Gianfranco Zola, or sorry, and Gianluca Vialli on the bench. Vialli, the only sub introduced that day. Um, as for Burra, they had Ben Roberts in goal. Uh, Curtis Fleming, Nigel Pearson, Gianluca Festa, who I liked, and Clayton Blackmore at left-back. In midfield, they had Janino, they had Robbie Musto, Emerson, and Phil Stamp. And then Ravinelli up front with Craig Hignett playing just off. Now, Ravinelli, (coughs) it was known he was looking to leave. 24 minutes into the game, he went down, claimed he had pulled his hamstring, signalled he had to go off. He was replaced by Mikel Beck. Uh, Five minutes later, Robbie Musto was taken off and Steve Vickers came on at centre-back and they went to a back three. Um, I I, I assume Musto was injured, I don't remember. And then on 74, Vladimir Kinder was brought on for Craig Hignett. So Borough lost that final and got relegated. What a horrible season. But, 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 oh, it gets worse. League Cup, Leicester City versus Middlesbrough. In the first game, at Wembley, Borough go one up through Ravenelli, 95th minute. Two minutes from full time, Emil Heskey equalises. Borough had been the better team. Leicester had scraped a late equaliser. Borough's team that day... Schwarzer, Cox, Fleming, Pearson and Festa. Fleming played left-back in that game. Uh, Hignett, Musto, Janino, and Emerson in midfield. Beck and Ravinelli up front. Vickers, Blackmore and Moore on the bench. Leicester's team, Keller, Grayson, Whitlow, Walsh, Camark, and Spencer Pryor. Is it Lennon and Parker in midfield? Claridge and Heskey up front. Poole, Taylor and Robbins on the bench. Uh, Taylor and Robbins introduced in extra time for Izzet and Whitlow. Game goes to a replay. Replay is played 10 days later. It's midweek. And instead of using Wembley, they used Hillsborough and Sheffield. Because I assume they viewed it as halfway between, which was fair. Burr's team lines up Ben... Ben Robertson goal. I assume Schwarzer had gotten injured, which is also why Roberts would have played the FA Cup final. Uh, Cox at right back. Kinder at left back. Pearson and Festa in the middle. Blackmore, Emerson and Musto in midfield. Janino and Hignett behind Via- uh, behind Ravanelli, Vickers, Moore and Beck. No goalkeeper again. A lot of clubs didn't pick a goalkeeper among the three subs. All three of them came on in that final. Um, for Leicester, Keller and goal. Grayson and Camark as the wing backs, Whitlow, Walsh, and Pryor as the centre backs. Is it Lennon and Parker again in midfield? Claritch and Heskey up front. Uh, Kevin Poole, backup keeper. Jamie Lawrence and Mark Robbins, outfield subs who did both come on. 0 0 after 90 minutes. Into extra time we go. And Steve Claritch with a swiveling volley, as I remember it, in the 100th minute to give Leicester City a taste of major silverware. Huge moment for them, but what a horrible, horrible time for Borough to lose both finals and get relegated. And this, like, whatever about losing to Chelsea in the FA Cup final, they should have won this final. They were a better team than Leicester. They were a better team than Leicester. But it wasn't to be. Leicester were more reliable. Leicester had a better manager in truth with Martin O'Neill. And Borough had Ravenelli and Emerson who didn't really want to be there. They had a lot of injuries through the year. And they got the points deduction. Very, very unfair. Very, very unfortunate. But it is what it is. So, that is the 96-97 Premier League season. And we will take a break now. And when we come back, it's just the gossip and we will be out the gap. So I will see you after these. Right. Welcome back. So we're just going to do the gossip and get done for the day. Um, Newcastle hope they can complete a £35 million move for Leicester City winger Harvey Burns to beat Aston Villa and West Ham to the 25 year old signature. I think he'd be a good signing for the tune. I really do. Uh, Kylian Mbappe thinks he might leave Paris... Sa- might have to leave Paris saint Why can't I speak? <coughs> Let me start that one again. Kylian Mbappe thinks he might have to leave Paris Saint-Germain this summer, as he is not planning to extend his contract beyond 2024, and the 24-year-old's preferred option is to join Real Madrid. PSG believes Mbappe has already agreed to join Real on a free transfer next summer. And if he does not sign a new deal with the French champions, they will sell him to the highest bidder this summer, regardless of who it is. It doesn't really work like that. They can't force him to sign for anybody. So they can accept all the bids they want. He can just refuse. Mbappe's first preference if he were to move to the Premier League would be Arsenal. No, it wouldn't. No, let's not be ridiculous here. No, it wouldn't. Oh, he likes Arteta's build. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. If he comes to England, he's going to Liverpool, City or United or maybe Chelsea because they would find the money. He's not going to Arsenal. Let's not be, real, be ridiculous here. Atletico Paranines have given Barcelona an ultimatum to complete the signing of Vito Roque. I think that deal has been done since. Uh, Gio Felix is keen on a move to PSG. Why, I don't know. Um, Inter Milan are stepping up their pursuit of Hugo Lloris. No, they're not. Absolute nonsense. Manchester United have reached an outline of personal terms with Andre Onana. It looks like they're going to get that deal done this week. Borussia Dortmund are keeping track of Jadon Sancho, although it is believed he wants to say it at Old Trafford. But it is believed United would like to get rid of him. At Dortmund, I, th- I think, I th- somebody reported, I might have had it on the Docks last week that they'd offered a loan, which would just be fantastic if that ever happened. Sporting Lisbon have agreed a £20.5 million deal to sign Victor Jokeres from Coventry. That's a great buy for them. Eric ten Hag is intent on offloading Sancho as well as Harry McTominay. Harry McTominay, Harry Maguire, Fred, and Scott McTominay. Uh, Diego Simeone is set to reject a lucrative offer to manage in Saudi Arabia. Mason Greenwell's Mason Green Mason Greenwood's 18 month exile from football could be set to come to an end with Atalanta interested in a loan deal. I would be hugely disappointed with any club that signs him. I have to be honest. A deal for Greenwood could help United's bid to sign Rasmus Hojlund. I don't think it will. England midfielder Delhi Ali has returned to training with Everton as he aims to get his career back on track. With Sean Dyche having told the 27-year-old he needs to get fit, I'm I'm really hopeful Delhi can somehow resurrect his career. John Terry has returned to Stamford Bridge and is working in Chelsea's academy. Okay. Uh, The Football Association will offer Lee Carsley a new contract to stay on as England under 21 manager. And rightly so. I think that's that's fully deserved. Um, Don't be surprised if he's the next Ireland manager, though, because it feels like there's a change coming if results don't improve and given what he's just done with the england under 21s i think he would be the obvious choice to come in uh on to sunday's gossip then bayern munich are expected to make an improved offer worth nearly 70 million for harry kane chelsea want 40 million for romelu lukaku they spent 100 million on him 2 years ago and he played one of those 2 years for inter brilliant um Manchester United have agreed personal terms with Rasmus Heusland and are prepared to ask Atalanta for a transfer. And he is prepared to ask Atalanta for a transfer. Uh, This is Jack Talbot on football transfers. And as we know, Jack is an enormous spoofer who knows absolutely nothing. Tottenham are monitoring the situation of Chelsea's 24-year-old Spaniard, Mark Kukurea. I really don't think they are. It's. I bet this is Steve Kay. It's, it's Football Francis again. I bet it's Steve Kay. It is Steve Kay. Another enormous, outrageous spoofer. Tottenham and Napoli are interested in signing Borussia Mönchengladbach and Japan defender Ko Itakura. <clears throat> Six Paris Saint-Germain players, including two summer signings, have complained to the hierarchy about comments made about the club by Kylian Mbappe. He didn't have much good to say about them. Real Madrid hope to sell Federico Valverde and Aurelian Chiumeni in a bid to raise funds. They're not going to sell both. I, I do think they might have to sell one if it comes down to it. And I would guess it's more likely Chiumeni because I think Valverde is viewed as a future captain of that club and I think he could be a Real Madrid Lifer. I know he came in from Uruguay, but I think he will stay there for the the big guts of his career. Um, where are we next then? Uh, Chelsea have opened talks with Arsenal over a deal for Foller and Balogun. I have a tough time believing that to be true. Who's written this? Yeah, Michael Rudling. I don't know who that is, So, is. Uh, I'm going to say that's unlikely. Ivory Coast winner, a winger, rather, uh, Wilfred Zaha, who is out of contract at Crystal Palace, is weighing up a fresh offer from the Eagles, while he has also held talks with PSG, Napoli and Galatasaray, and Marseille, and at least one club in Saudi Arabia. FC20 are looking at a loan move for Facundo Palestri. He needs to get away from United this summer, so that makes sense. Bayern Munich have triggered the 50 million release clause of Kim Min-jae and will sign the 26-year-old from Napoli on a 5-year deal. It's a really good signing, I is it? He's a really good defender. But they've let Lucas Hernandez go to PSG to fund this. And ideally Hernandez is the one you would have wanted to keep to play with him. I would have a bit of concern about him and De appearing as a pairing in terms of their foot speed. And him and Upamecano as well, not exactly the most dynamic of centre-back. When they get moving, they're quick, but those first two to three yards, they're a bit spooky. Um, I'd be a little bit concerned about it. I'd be a little bit concerned, because Upamecano especially, does things that are but they're wild, to be honest. They're, he does mental things. At least twice a game, Deodupa Dupe does something, and you have to rewind it and watch it four times to see whats what it is that he's done and why he's done it. Uh, Inter Milan want to sign Jan Sommer. I assume they're going to get him as a short-term fix and get um, Anatolian as the long-term the long-term keeper, which is a good move. Burnley have agreed a deal to bring in Borussia Dortmund's 19-year-old French centre-back Sumala Koulibaly on loan with a 15 million option to buy. I have to say I'm surprised that Dortmund have allowed this. For me, I'd have been looking at him and Nico Schlotterberg, and thinking, right, those two are part of my long-term core of centre-backs here because they're both really, really talented. And between them, they lock down that left-sided role. I don't need to worry about a left-side centre-back for a long time now. And instead, he's gone. So, you know, strange move in my view. Strange move. Fulham are set to agree a new deal with Willian. I think that's good for them. Uh, Juventus have told Chelsea they can have... Dušan Vlahović for 25 million euro plus Romelu Lukaku I would be willing to bet massive amounts of money that that has not happened. Lukaku is willing to take a 1 million per year pay cut in order to make a permanent return. That sounds great to you and me but like he's on like 300 grand a week so he's willing to drop to 280 how will he survive? Chelsea have told Inter of Juventus' interest. There's no Juventus interest. They're trying to push the price up on on Inter because they know there's no market for him. Uh, Bayern Munich have made their improved bid of 70 million plus add ons for Harry Kane. I believe it's been turned down. New Al Etefak manager, Stephen Jarrett, has held talks with Saha over a 16 million per year move to Saudi. I don't believe that at all because that's not one of the richer Saudi clubs. They've also been linked to Jordan Henderson. He's not going there either. Uh, Manchester United are preparing to submit a bid for Rasmus Heusland, yada yada. Aston Villa are interested in Bayer Leverkusen winger Musa Diaby. That would be an unbelievable get if they could land him. I, I I have a tough time seeing Villa land him with respect because the price would be enormous. But if they could land him, it would be great business because his value will continue to go up in my view. Fulham and Crystal Palace are interested in signing Serginho Dest. Yeah, it makes sense to both. They both need help at right-back. Wolfsburg are willing to keep hold of Mickey van der Ven if Tottenham do not meet their £40 million asking price. Do you know what's funny about this is their asking price at the start of the summer was £26 million. Uh, And then Liverpool got involved and now Spurs are involved and the price all of a sudden is much higher. Uh, Harvey Barnes wants to move to Newcastle. I think he just wants to move to a Premier League club. Fred has changed agents and made interest from Fulham and Saudi- and Saudi Arabian clubs. Paris Saint Germain could look to sign Victor Osterman as a replacement for Mbappe. I, I, I don't see it this summer, but you know, you never know. Uh, American legend Landon Donovan has criticised Christian Pulisic for choosing to join AC Milan over a move to MLS soccer. That can't be real. Surely he doesn't think MLS is the same level as Syria. And surely he doesn't think any MLS club has the same weight behind it as AC Milan, one of the greatest clubs in the world. But then Landon Donovan did spend most of his career hiding from the top leagues, you know? Spent most of his career hiding with San Jose on a three-year loan with LA Galaxy. Came over and dipped his toe... Later, he'd obviously been at Leverkusen, didn't make the grade, went and hid in the MLS. Allegedly, the greatest American player of all time. Ask me, Ars. Roma boss Jose Mourinho is keen on signing Scott McTominay. Um, I don't know who Cameron Smith is, but you know, keep spoofing some. Uh, the Syria side are also interested in Marcel Sabitzer. sir. Manchester United and Newcastle are both exploring a deal. For Axel De Sassi, I think he makes more sense for Newcastle than he does for United. Uh, Jurian Timber has had his medical with Arsenal and returned home for a farewell party at the weekend before he completes his move. Sheffield United are keen on (coughs) Lewis O'Brien. We saw that one last week. Everton have made an offer to Ashley Young, who's 38 years of age, um, as after his contract expired at Villa. Tiago Silva spoke to Paulo de Bala and asked the Argentine forward about joining him at Chelsea. Okay, uh, Liverpool are prepared to let Nat Phillips join Leeds, but only on a permanent deal. Manchester United will offer. Well, sorry, will listen to loan offers from Ahmed Diallo. They should be keeping him and using him personally. I well, I think so anyway. Uh, West Ham have in, registered their interest in Habib Diallo. A pretty good player. Pretty good player. Don't know if he's good enough to start for them, but yeah, he's pretty good. Um, former England midfielder Jake Livermore played as a trialist for Watford in a friendly against Arsenal after being released by West Brom. Um, yeah, he's been a pretty good player. Thirty three, might still have something to offer in the Championship. Been around a long, long time. Like he's he's not gone around since when did he make his debut? The 0-9-10 season played one game. Actually, he made his debut debut in 07-08 for NK Dons on loan in League Two. That's a long time ago. Yeah, good player for Hull. Obviously, good player for West Brom as well. They're looking to go a different direction, which is understandable at this stage. So, uh, yeah, hopefully he lands somewhere. That's it. That's all I've got, folks. Thank you, as always, and I will see you all tomorrow as we continue to be big old nostalgia merchants. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.